Isaiah chapter 6 is where we're turning this morning. Isaiah 6 and verse 5 is where we'll land. Isaiah 6 and verse 3, of course, we looked at last week. The wonderful song that the seraphim were singing or saying one to another before the Lord and his presence. The response of Isaiah in verse 5 is where we'll look uh, here in just a moment. Of course, remember that Isaiah, in that year that a earthly king, a temporal king, died, he saw the, the real king or the eternal king. Not that King Uzziah was not a king. He was king, definitely. But he saw who is the eternal king, who is the one who is in ultimate authority over all. And the contrast between the death of, of somebody who even died as a leper, somebody who was unclean, somebody who even had to proclaim unclean and unclean as the scripture commanded lepers, those with the skin disease and so forth. And now we see somebody who is entirely not that, somebody who is holy, 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 somebody who is so different from Isaiah's experience, Isaiah's prophecy even in the course of the first five chapters of Isaiah and the righteousness that God himself reveals and, and the woes that Isaiah pronounced upon the nations, especially to Israel and, and Judah, and the amazing response that Isaiah has after, after the course of it. You've heard the phrase maybe as uh, the, the change in monarchy occurs, the king is dead, long live the king. I always thought that's kind of rude, isn't it? Because he just died, or she, or the queen is dead. Uh, she hasn't died. She's still alive. But uh, when that statement is going, what, what are they talking about? The long live the king. He's right there. But it's the transfer of authority, transfer of power and the right to rule. You never have to say that about God. You never say the king is dead. God is dead. No, he's, he, he's not dead. He's not. And, and you can go down that phrase. Of course, God is dead. Who, who killed him? Well, we killed him. That, that phrase is, is somewhat misunderstood from Nietzsche back in the 50s or 60s. But the point is God is alive. He, he is he's not threatened at all. You read Psalm 2, the nations, why are they in an uproar? Why are they lifting up themselves against the Lord, against Yahweh and his anointed? It's because they're foolish. They're proud. They're arrogant. But God is not threatened by it. God is not concerned of a coup. He's looking for a means of escape, kind of like Herod. Herod the Great, by the way, had so many different, had a whole uh, assembly of fortresses. Leaving from Jerusalem, had a fortress over here in the Judean desert, another one south of the desert, another one farther into trying to get back to Edom from which he came, right? He hired the great was an Idumean, Edomite. Anyhow, God does not have an exit strategy. He is king. He is Lord of everything. He showed Isaiah his glory here in Isaiah 6. And the response, of course, we will see. Isaiah 6 and verse 1 speaks about this setting. This is the first time, by the way, in this, uh, I was going to say letter, but in this prophecy, that Isaiah really inserts himself into the into the the text, the narrative, the the uh, the prophecy. It was introduced at the first verse, of course, who he is and and when did he uh, during what reigns of kings did he have his prophetic ministry? But here we see himself inserting uh, inserting himself into the the uh, history of this of this letter, and it goes on. He'll continue to insert himself as the as the text goes along. But in that time, when there's a big change, as I had reigned for fifty two years, and he was mostly a good king, largely a good king, especially in relation to other kings, but he was gone. He was dead, and now this next king was not going to be a good good fella. Uzziah, or excuse me, Isaiah is very concerned, very troubled about what even the Lord is prompting him to speak to the nations, and God says, let's just have a reset. Let me show you who I am, and you then 
go and bear my message. You be faithful to complete my message. We looked at these verses somewhat in passing, but a question comes, maybe you thought of it yourself, is God, the vision of God here, God in his throne, God in his temple on earth, or is it God in his temple in heaven? You realize there was a temple. This, of course, is in Isaiah's day, about 730, 730, 740 in B.C. There was a temple. Solomon's temple was still ex uh, existent in Jerusalem at that time. Beautiful, magnificent temple, much larger than what you would see now on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Dome of the Rock probably sits right where the first and the second temple uh, was uh, situated. But Solomon's temple was glorious, a beautiful structure. But more than that, it's where God dwelt. Do you remember in Ezekiel 8 and 9 is when Ezekiel sees a vision of the, the glory, cloud of, uh, glory cloud of God departing from, from the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies of the Temple. So is this a vision that Isaiah has of God, the glory of God, sitting right there on his throne in Jerusalem, in that temple? God, you remember, came down and dwelt in that place, first with Moses, the dedication of the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the glory, of cloud, glory cloud of God, the Shekinah, came and settled on that Ark of the Covenant, Exodus 40. We also see it in 1 Kings 8, I think it is, where the glory of God comes down and establishes himself there. What is striking with Isaiah's prophecy, but especially with Ezekiel's, because it's right during that time of, of the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, and the casting out of the, of the Israelites. God was living in here all the time. There was the glory cloud of God right there, and they turned their backs on him and wanted to worship the sun, wanted to worship carved images that they made on the walls of the temple, also worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. What, that's just striking that they would, they would be so bold as to refuse the presence of God and chase after a lie, a vanity. And yet you think, wait a minute, that kind of sounds familiar. That kind of sounds like me. When I know God is here, God dwelling in, my, in me, right? We just read it in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? He's given to you. And yet we say, that's really nice and all. But I'm going to go over here and just pursue some vanity for a while, pursue my own desires. And we, we ought to think, yuck, what? You're exchanging the truth of God, the, the substance, the glory of God for this over here. Isaiah repudiated that in his own life. We'll see that in verse 5. But he excoriated. He, he found much fault with the actions of the idolatrous nation of Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern king, kingdom, both going after vanity, falseness, idolatry. And Isaiah is there saying, repent, come back to the Lord. God is bringing this wonderful message here, saying, look, I'm God. I'm, I haven't gone anywhere. I am steadfast. I am faithful to my promises. Israel is faithless. Judah is faithless. But I am faithful, and those who come to me will find comfort. We looked at this in verse 1. Uh, going back to that question, though, is this the earthly throne or the heavenly throne? Could be either or both. I don't know. Because we see God establishing himself in his earthly throne, uh, even, uh, remember when the Ark of the Covenant came from Shiloh down to battle against the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it talks about Yahweh of hosts, that they carried the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God, 1 Samuel 4 and verse 4. So, 
what is striking about that is, wait a minute, when they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant from the, where the temple was, tab, tabernacle, excuse me, the temporary structure, and Shiloh down to the, the coastlands for this, for this battle, the glory of God, God is going with them. And when the Philistines took the, the Ark back to their land, that God was still present in there, it seems like it, reading this, and, and yet we are, what? How can that be? How can that even be possible? We see that the, um, a little bit later, when David is bringing that Ark of the Covenant back, of course it was different places for a few years, a few decades, uh, but David brings it back into Jerusalem, and in Second Samuel 6, it talks about the name of Yahweh of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim were those angels that were facing each other on the top of the mercy seat, the, the ark itself, had the, 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 the mercy seat on top of that ark, that they, that's where God himself was enthroned. I don't want to belabor the point, but just to say, God was in the midst of his people. God was there, and yet they turned away from him and, and again, sought vanities, thought, sought lying things. We also see Yahweh contrasting in his heavenly throne. First Kings 22 uh, has Micaiah, the prophet, who says, Hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. So you see Yahweh here in Isaiah 6, but Micaiah says he's in heaven with all the angels surrounding him on his right hand and left hand. Psalm 11 verse 4 talks about Yahweh's in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's established his throne in the heavens. On and on it goes. So the question is, is he there or is he, is he in heaven or is he in Jerusalem? Yes. Is that a problem? We have a problem with that? In, in, in the sense here, I, I think this is a vision of, of God on the throne in Jerusalem. I think he's right there, especially when you see the, what happens when Isaiah responds with his statement in verse 5 and the response of the response to the response. The, one of the seraph uh, angels uh, created beings there went and took a coal from the altar. What altar is that? The altar of offering, the altar where the animals were, were burned for a sin offering or a burnt offering or a thanks offering or these different offerings. So there was something physical, tangible, it was taken even, uh, well, we'll see it in, in, in the verses as we get to it. But either way we go, whether it's earthly throne or heavenly throne, earthly temple or heavenly temple, there is a temple. Even Hebrews talks about the, uh, the heavenly temple. Hebrews 8 and verse 1 says, Christ sat down at the right hand of the throne, the majesty in the heavens. It speaks also of the, the, uh, the holy temple not made with hands, that is to say, not of this earth. And he went into heaven itself and then, of course, presented his, his body as that sacrifice. Don't want to belabor the point. I already have you say, get on with it. And yet, where is God? He is in our midst. He is so close, close to us. Even now, he is right it's not that we need to bring him down, you know, we usher in your presence. He's here. He's in our midst. He's with his Christians. He's with his people. But how do we treat his presence? How do we regard him in our midst? Do we say, oh, nice to see you, God, and you carry on your conversation, or you carry on, what, I'm glad you showed up. Well, you're, you're early. Wow, that's interesting. Do we have a holy and reverential awe, respect, fear, but also a love and devotion? Something that is both uh, repulsive in a good sense, because of who we are. Remember how Peter, when he saw Jesus bring in a great catch of fish, and he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That kind of a, a, a holy, uh, righteous 
repulsiveness toward the holiness of God because we're not. We're not that. We are holy by God's grace, by his, uh, uh, an alien or extrinsic righteousness, something that's granted to us. But in ourselves, we ought to be uh, hiding as Adam and Eve did in the garden. They hid themselves in the garden because they were afraid. They were naked and, and ashamed because, or they were afraid. And they, you know, we can read it in Genesis 3. But this kind of, of drawing back from a holy God, but also then wanting to draw near to him loving him, delighting in him, obeying him, finding the, the pleasures of, of uh, everything at his right hand. Uh, Psalm is it 30, no, Psalm 16, right? Yeah, Psalm 16 at the very end talks about at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's that, that tension then. How do, how do we relate to God? Fear, yes, honor, respect, worship, adoration, but also yikes. I'm coming before God when we gather together. Yeah, we're looking forward to see so-and-so. I'm looking down to catch up with this person. Absolutely do it. We're coming to worship God. We're coming to celebrate him. We're coming to, to celebrate his grace upon our lives that he doesn't judge us right now. We deserve death. It's a mercy that anybody's alive, Christian or non-Christian, on, on the face of the earth right now. The judgment of sin, the wages of sin is death. And yet God in his mercy, even to Isaiah in this text, is cleansing. For those who tremble, who, who are penitent before him, we see him seated on his throne. We see these seraph uh, angels uh, uh, hovering or floating, flying around him. We hear, as Isaiah records for us here in verse 3, what are they even saying? They're saying it to each other. Not that they forget, but they're saying it to each other. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We looked last week at the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the glory of God contained right here in this one statement from the uh, seraph, seraphim. But there's more that's going on, not just those wonderful words that are coming out of the mouth of, of, the, of these created beings. In verse 4, it says, The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out, him being one of the, one of the seraphim, uh, while the house of God was filling with smoke. One of the most secure or substantial elements of a door frame is not the upper part, it's not the door itself that swings, it's the, the foundation of it, the threshold, the, the bottom of it. Especially in this situation, if it's the earthly temple, it is something that is in, not in bedrock, but it is on top of bedrock. It is stone upon stone. It's not, this is not going to move of itself. It's not kind of shaky. Maybe you're in a house, maybe that, that you can feel somebody opens or closes the door that uh, shakes the whole house. It's not because of the the faultiness or the the... the shoddiness of the of the construction it is because the the immensity of this activity going on in the temple just shakes the whole thing there's an earthquake because of this just at the voice of somebody saying the true statements about god you wonder how much the earth would shake and this is i don't want to have a guilt trip but just to in contrast our worship of god does it tend to have a, an earth-shattering, earthquaking kind of a, a feel to it. I'm not getting into feelings and so forth. Just the content of what we're saying, is it so much taken with God's glory that the earth would, as Jesus himself said, even the rocks would, would cry out in, in defense of this, in proclaiming God's glory. This is a, it reminds us of God's glory on the Mount of, Mount of Sinai, Horeb, uh, the mountain in the wilderness, where the glory of God came down. There was smoke, there was lightning, there was thunder, 
there was earthquakes and the people were so afraid. And they said they were supposed to come up to the mountain themselves, all the nation of Israel around this mountain. And they said, no, Moses, you go because we're too afraid of this whole deal. And you can read about that in Exodus 19 and 20, how Moses says, you know, God doesn't want you to be afraid, but so that the fear of him might remain in you and you may not sin or that you may not sin. Exodus 20 verse 20. 2020 vision, by the way. It's a good way to remember that verse. It's not that you would be afraid, shrinking back, but that you would be fearful so you wouldn't sin. It's, you're fearful because of your sin, your wickedness, you, you, and you're afraid to come near to the holy God. Let me tell you, Isaiah has seen this, and he responds in a, in a very penitent, trembling kind of a way. These seraphim are worshiping God, and everything is responding. The whole earth responds in that. The whole uh, house was house of God was filling with smoke. Where's the smoke coming from? It can come, and it has come from the divine presence itself. Remember back in in uh, Exodus 19 when God comes down into that into that mountain, we can see smoke uh, going on there. It could come from that altar. It could come from maybe there's a burnt offering going on at that point. So the smoke is actually coming from the altar of, of burnt offering out in the courtyard of the temple or possibly the altar of incense inside the holy place, altar of incense that was supposed to be maintained. It could be from the menorah, the, the candlesticks, uh, olive oil candlesticks, by the way, in the uh, temple itself. And yet this is an amazing sight. You have an earthquake going on. You have these seraphim going on, which I don't know if you've ever seen a, seen a seraph. I don't know if Isaiah ever did. It's the only time we meet these beautiful creatures is in Isaiah 6. And all the, all the scriptures only mentioned here. We re read about cherubim, we read about other angels. But whoa, these are fiery uh, servants of God. And what are they serving? They're serving God by worshiping him, honoring him. And that is our response, should be as well. God is the one who is receiving this. God is the one who is enthroned. God, the robe of his, of uh, the, head, the hem or the extensions of his robe fill the temple. Now we see the temple filling with smoke. And then we see this adequate response or inadequate, if you don't mind. Verse five, then I, Isaiah said, woe is me for I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell or live among a people of unclean lips. Why do you say that, Isaiah? For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. He is the one that makes this change in Isaiah's perspective. Isaiah, who's already written, by the way, five chapters of prophecy, already written, woe, woe, woe to other people, nations uh, surrounding Israel, but also the nation itself, Israel, Judah. But now he says, not woe to others, woe to me. Woe in the sense of alas, or oh, yikes, or maybe you've heard this expression, oy ve, it's a Yiddish expression, or, or oy vavoy that is also uh, a Yiddish expression, basically this, saying, whoa, uh, alas, uh, this isn't going to be good. This is an expression of shame. It's a, a feeling of being exposed. You, you often hear about people when they come up to a a public uh, uh, speech opportunity that, that you know, feels like either they're coming up in their pajamas, you know, just, oh, I'm embarrassed, or, or just entirely uh, exposed to, to everybody as a fear, as a, as a concern, as, as something that grips them. Isaiah had that. He says, woe, I am undone, or I am ruined, he says. Woe to me. I have this great uh, feeling of, of exposure before God. God sees me for who I am, or at least now I see myself for him. I thought I was doing pretty good. I'm a prophet of God, after all. And yet that very tool, that instrument that is a, prophet, a prophetic, a prophetic uh, instrument, my lips, unclean. 
wicked in relation to the holiness of God that is filling my sight right now? How dare I think that I am worthy or adequate for this task? Isaiah says, woe to me. He'd already pronounced, I think, eight or so different woes to other people, uh, beginning in, in chapter 3, verse 9. Woe to their soul, he says, those who uh, are idolatrous before God. Woe to the wicked, Isaiah 3 and verse 11. Uh, woe to those who steal. Uh, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Other things he's pronouncing woe on other people, but now he says it to himself. He says it because of his lips. And you think, what in the, what's your deal with the lips thing? Why not go to the heart, right? Shouldn't you go get to the heart of the matter, the root of the matter? Well, he says, my lips are unclean. And that causes me to be destroyed. It causes me to be ruined. Or uh, some people would even say, it just you, you're disintegrated. You, there's nothing left to you. that You can't even scrape the little crumbs back together to make Humpty Dumpty again. No, they're, they're, you are totally ruined because of this vision of the holiness of God. You have fallen apart. You are destroyed. It's, Isaiah uses this in a very physical sense about our city of Moab is destroyed and ruined. Surely in a night, Kir of Moab is destroyed and ruined, Isaiah 15 and verse 1, and other times where this idea of total annihilation is here. And yet, lest you think, wait a minute, is Isaiah speaking, and he's not because he goes on and gives us 60 more chapters of, of prophecy. He, he's not talking about annihilationism, annihilationism, which is to say, some people say, when we die, that's it, you cease to exist. Oh, that'd be nice for those who are not in Christ, just to stop being, but that's not what God has intended. We, everybody will live forever. There is no annihilation, ultimately, of the soul. The soul is eternal. It will live forever with God or without God with him in the glories of the new heavens and new earth, or suffering and sharing the fate of the devil and his angels, those who are not in Christ. There is no ultimate annihilation of the soul. Everybody lives together, or lives forever, I should say. So Isaiah is not saying that I'm, I'm done for, I'm dead, I'm not ceasing to exist. He is saying, in my present situation, woe. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe in these regards. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He, he focuses on that aspect. and doesn't get to the heart so much, but he goes to the proof of the heart. How, how do we know what's in the heart? Well, it comes out in our words. And for him to focus on the lips as, the, as that unclean aspect of his life just reminds us it's not just the fruit of what he's talking about. It's the root itself behind it. I am a person who is unclean. I, all, of my, all of my words are tainted by my depravity. Now, again, when we talk about total depravity, if you go back to a, a, a Calvinistic idea, the tulip, you heard about the tulip, uh, total depravity is that T. And it doesn't speak, it doesn't teach, rather, that everybody is, bad, is as bad as they could be. We see lots of good unbelieving people. They're, they're kind, they're gracious, all this kind of thing. It doesn't mean that they are as bad as they could be. But in relation to God, they're not holy. They are un, unrighteous. They are unclean before God. And even every element of their body is somehow affected by that sin. Physical uh, death will, will ensue. Uh, the, the 
depravity of mind, Romans 1 would talk about uh, being darkened in their understanding, Ephesians 2 uh, and, four, for, and 2 and 4, chapter 4 also speak about that. So there is a, a, a complete or, or comprehensive uh, expression or debilitation of sin in this regard. When we talk about total depravity in that regard, Paul, excuse me, Isaiah is focusing on his lips because it is the pathway uh, for the heart to express itself. This is what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 12, uh, but especially Matthew 15. You can record either, either of those uh, passages. Matthew 15, of course, uh, they were concerned, his disciples were concerned that, you know, we should be careful what we eat and we shouldn't, you know, we should just be careful, eat the eat the kosher stuff. And Jesus says, you know, it's not what goes into the body that defiles, it's what comes out. He says, what? We don't understand it. And so thankfully, Jesus uh, helped them to understand and makes it very clear. This is uh, Matthew chapter 15. Verse 15, Peter came and said, explain this. What are you talking about? And he says, verse uh, 18, I'll just skip over a couple verses. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile the man. What you eat, how you eat it, doesn't matter. But what is coming out of your heart, that's why Isaiah focuses on that. He says, I'm supposed to be set apart to God as a prophet, and everything I say is tainted by my heart. My lips are unclean. I mentioned earlier, this is the same idea of Uzziah, who was the king, right, who died. He died of leprosy or died with leprosy, either way, kind of like with COVID. Anyway, that uh, he was unclean and even had to announce that unclean, unclean, had to dwell in the corner of his house, had to be living separate from other, everybody else. And yet, Isaiah has that same response. I am unclean. I am the one who, I don't, may not have leprosy like, like the old king, the dead king, but I am just as defiled, just as wicked as him, just as not clean, not holy, not set apart to God, He's supposed to be as a prophet, but he says, ah, woe, woe is me. I thought I was doing really good, especially in relation to other people. That's why we cannot have a relative holiness. Well, I'm better than that person over there. At least I've never done this, that, or the thing. Have you been holy all your life? Every choice, every word, every action, every desire, holy, righteous, just, good, perfect, Oh, when we say it that way, no, that's not me. But when we when we relativize our holiness, then we think, boy, I've, I've got a little bit to boast about. I've not killed anybody. I've not done this. You know, all the fasting and offering that the Pharisee said in Luke 16. Uh, no, that's not what we're talking about. In relation to God, each one of us deserves to die. That's it. We deserve to be ruined. We deserve God's judgment. But we see how a contrite response to the holiness of God leads to cleansing, leads to sanctification, leads even to service or commissioning here in this verse. Paul says, excuse me, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips and my neighbors, they're in the same condition as me. It's not like I can go to somebody else and find salvation or help or hope. There is a righteousness that I desire that I realize I do not have. I've got to find it outside of myself, outside of my community. It's only going to come from God himself. Why does he say that? For my eyes have seen Yahweh, seen the king, rather, Yahweh of hosts. My eyes have seen when that glory, when the the fullness of God is evident to us, our response should be, woe, 
whoa, not like W-H-O-A, whoa, like a horse. Whoa, like cursed am I. I am damned before God. I am under the righteous penalty of God because of my sin. And yet I am drawn to God. My eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. I, I delight in him. I want to go in his direction, but I, I feel that I shouldn't. I feel like I should run away, which is a right thing a right response to realize our sinfulness, not a, a right response ultimately, not running away and finding our salvation in somebody else or, or saying, I guess I, I can't be saved. I'm, I'm too, too much of a sinner. Are you serious? Nobody's too much of a sinner. Did Jesus die for sin? Yes. Did he die, just die for the, the nice, respectable sin? Every sin. He became sin. It's not like, well, I've done too much. You don't know my whole story. I don't need to know your whole story. I know that you are born of Adam. You are a sinner through and through, but you look to Christ. You run to him. You find cleansing. You find salvation. You find sanctification. You find utility in eternity. Don't feel that you're too far gone to be saved or used by God. Isaiah is one who focused on his own ruination and despair and yet came to a humbled, a humbled, contrite response to God. To God. My eyes have seen the king, not the king Uzziah who's dead. We just had his funeral and everything. But the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Yahweh of hosts, this is who, whom Isaiah is, is fixated upon in this time. He says, my lips, which are those, those things that are useful for a prophet, are so defiled by my sin. I don't know how I can fulfill his duty. I don't know how I can fulfill this prophetic work that is entrusted to me. Thankfully, God the Father God, Yahweh, responds. One of the seraphim, this is really briefly, we'll look at this. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. You think, why did, the coal is in his hand, but he used tongs to retrieve it from the altar. I mean, he's a fiery being anyway. Does it really matter? He could have, re, he could have been sitting in the altar, right? The burning fire, that's not an issue. But because, remember how they had six wings, with two they covered the face, two at the feet, and two they flew. Even a holy and righteous angel shows honor to God, covering the face, covering the feet for humility, for, for the realization, I'm not God, I'm a created being, and I worship and honor God. And to, to not just go and you know, boldly take a, a coal from the fire, from the altar, he uses the holy instruments, the holy sacred instruments, and, and takes a coal and then puts it in his hand, which you think, be careful with that. But he takes it, with uh, his hand, brings it to Isaiah here in verse 7, and he touched my mouth. Now, you've heard it said, perhaps you've heard it said, maybe in relation to these, these verses, that the lips of, of a human body are so sensitive. That's why we like to kiss, because they're very sensitive. But when, when something like a hook, for example. Scripture talks about having a hook in the lip and being led forth. Now, a hook in the nose is one thing, but a hook in the lip, ouch! To have a fiery, burning coal touch your mouth, touch your lips, and you think, Isaiah, how are you going to survive this? What's, what's going to happen? Well, thankfully, we have an explanation here. The seraph says, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity has been taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, there's a lot of things going on with that, that statement. But he says, this coal has touched you, and it hurt. Isaiah didn't record that part. But that, that cleansing, that purification, Jesus himself said, if you come to me, you come to follow after me. This is Luke chapter 9. Anyone who desires to follow after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What is that? 
the, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die. You don't live anymore. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I don't live anymore, Paul says. It's Christ who lives in me. There's a, been a remarkable transformation. And Paul even says at the end of Galatians, I'm not going to boast in anything except the cross by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is a death that happens as we come to Christ. And you think, well, I thought Jesus was just going to come and make me the happiest guy in, in the world. Not always. There's a lot of suffering. Don't you realize that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? And you think, well, I, I don't like that. I, I think I'm just going to follow you and just keep it quiet. He who denies me before men, I'll also deny him before my Father in heaven. So you want that? You want that solution? No, you want to come before God. You want to accept everything, every gracious gift that comes from God, even the suffering part, because in this case, the suffering is a cleansing opportunity. The suffering, the, the, the intense heat that comes upon Isaiah's lips, a very sensitive portion of his body, is that agent or method by which Isaiah is now cleansed. And, and we'll see in verse 8, consecrated to the Lord's service. You think, well, how did the coal burn do that? I mean, if a burning coal can save people, then why didn't Jesus, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because, and this is a, the short story, short answer to that, because what was happening on that altar was pointing to what Christ would do on the cross. Every animal sacrifice from Abel, right, Genesis 4, to the, to the destruction of the temple, and even what's going to happen in the future when the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem temporally, and then the, the, the temple that Ezekiel describes in, in the last nine or so chapters of Ezekiel, all those sacrifices, well, historically, in time past, pointed forward to Christ. The sacrifices that will happen in the future will point back to Christ. What's the, what's the thing we ought to pay attention to? What Christ has done. Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection on our behalf, his ascension to the Father. That's where cleansing comes. At this time in the Lord's economy, this is 740 or so B.C., 700 years before Christ came to die uh, on that cross, we see a, 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 a promise, a, a confirmation that God himself can provide this cleansing. God himself can take care of your uncleanness, your defilement, your, your wickedness, your undoneness before him. The, the seraph says, this has touched your lips. This is, it hurt, but it has cleansed you. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. These different words talking about the unrighteousness or uncleanness of, of Isaiah. He says, look, either way, your iniquity, the, the way that you are uh, a, a shameful actor before God, that you have fallen far short of the glory of God, Isaiah, Romans uh, 3, uh, 23 would say, and, and yet that has been taken away. It's been rolled away from you. It's, it's something that is no longer part of your um, a curriculum vitae, if you don't mind, your, your biography, your, the story of your life. It was something that used to be described you, but no longer. It's been rolled away, taken away from you. Your sin is, the word here atoned for is to say covered. Remember we studied covered, how to cover sin. We either cover sin by overlooking it or you confront it. Uh, and it was a few weeks ago we studied that. But here is this idea of sin being covered or, or um, it's not visible anymore. It's, it's dealt with. This word atoned for is what we see in the name, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Kippur is this word, or it's this word to, to atone or, or cover that sin. Either way, not just the defiled or unclean lips, but his whole iniquitous heart has been dealt with through the work 
of the seraph through this coal, but ultimately through what Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Isaiah is now cleansed. He That issue that separated him, that made him feel as if he ought to run away from God, and he was screaming because of the, the judgment that was upon him, is done. And now Isaiah can have peace, he can have joy, he can even find a a relation to God because of this cleansing. Verse 8 of Isaiah 6, and we'll just look briefly and be done. It says, Whom shall I send? The voice of, of the Lord, Yahweh, speaking, the Adonai, speaks, saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now you see, by the way, kind of a, a who, who's saying this? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Is, is God himself talking in the midst of his, is he talking to his seraphim? Hey, guys, what do you think? Who, who ought we to send? Or is he talking, most likely, in this triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, kind of like we saw in Genesis 1. God made man in his own image, in the image of God. He created uh, them. And we see the, the idea, God makes us in his image, and we are in the image and likeness of God, in the triune aspect of God. Here we see the same kind of attitude. Whom shall I send? Well, what, what's, what's the mission? It's kind of like my father says, you know, you know, the answer is yes, Lord. Now what's the question? The question is, whom shall I send? Well, send, you for, send for what? Ice cream? You know, something to, uh, you need something? It's not anything like that. You can read on, we won't look at that, verse 9 and following. Isaiah is sent on this commission, and he's saying words that nobody's going to listen to. Whole nations are just going to ignore him, hate him, and eventually kill him because of this. So God, the Lord, is saying, whom shall I send on this mission of prophetic work, bring judgment and also comfort? Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. But he says, who who are we going to send? And Isaiah says, I'm right here, send me. He says two words in Hebrew, but here it takes five words to say it. Here am I. And not in the sense of, woe is me, I guess uh, there's nobody else here, I guess you can use me. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm your man. You've cleansed me, you have commissioned me, I will take it, I will serve you to the end of my days. Send me on your behalf. This cleansing that you have provided for me, me who is ruined because of my vision of Yahweh, I want other people to know this as well. Now you can read ahead, Isaiah 53, who has believed our report? Not very many people. But God always has a remnant of people, Isaiah and others, in that time that would believe, would accept the word of God. Isaiah was going into a very difficult nation preaching the gospel. Northern kingdom, of course, was going to be destroyed within 20 years or so. Southern kingdom, another 100 or so years after that, 150. But Isaiah had this work. He says, I'm, I'm your man, send me, I want to do it. And, and you can read the rest of the commission as... Uh, as God details it there. Summary, though. Isaiah saw this vision of the Lord, and he was undone. Who did he really see? Whom did Isaiah see? Do you remember, we read it last week, I guess, in John chapter 1, where it says, No one has seen God at any time. John 1 and verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No one has seen God. God is a spirit. God cannot be seen. And, as we could see in so many different places in Scripture, if you see God, you're going to die. Manoah, Samson's father, we thought, we've seen the Lord, we're going to die. And his wife said, if he wanted to kill us, he would have done it already. He wants us to have this son, Samson, and raise him up as a judge. Other people saw the Lord. Remember, Moses asked, so show me you, and that'll be enough for me. Exodus 33, Exodus 34, God appears, but he says, you can't see me, 
and live, for no man can see me and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by you. After I'm passed by, you can see my back parts, but you cannot see me directly. So who did Isaiah see? Briefly, John chapter 12. Speaking of Isaiah and Isaiah's prophecy, and even quoting that verse I just mentioned of Isaiah 53, who will believe our report? John 12 and verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Who is him? Who is his that is being referred to? It's Jesus. It is the Messiah, the Son of God that Isaiah saw high and lifted up in the temple, enthroned in his temple. And we think, well, wait a minute. How, how did that happen? Just as any other vision of Yahweh, it's looking at Christ. Christ is Yahweh. He is the Son of God. He is the one who was seen, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. It's Jesus. The King of kings, it's Jesus. When anybody sees the Lord, it's seeing Jesus himself. No one has seen God at any time. The Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, has explained him. The response that John had in, um, well, this is free. This is extra. Okay. But remember when the, the Last Supper, when, and all the disciples are there with Jesus, sharing the Last Supper with Jesus, and they're reclined at the table, right? And Jesus is there. Do you remember the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned upon his breast and said, Who is the one who's betraying you, Lord? Can you imagine leaning on Jesus' breast, on his chest, on his bosom, and you know, leaning back and, Hey, who's, who's the guy? Contrast that very intimate, personal uh, interaction with what John sees in Revelation 1. I'll take you there. But his response when he sees a very similar vision, by the way, what we read in Isaiah 6 and in Ezekiel 1, we see it in Revelation 1, this God, this, this woe, and John's response is not, oh, you're so wonderful, give me a big hug, I haven't seen you in a long time. He falls on his face as a dead man. This one whom Jesus loves, he's secure in Jesus' love, but he says, whoa, I have seen the Lord, and I'm ruined, falling on my face. That response, that is the response we ought to have as we come before him in his word, as we come together with his people, not having a, an Eeyore face like, whoa, I'm, you know, woe is me, I can, but, but realizing I've got nothing in myself. I cling to Christ. I celebrate him. I run to Christ because he's my life. All I have is Christ. Didn't we just sing that song? All I have is Christ. Isaiah had Christ. John had Christ. Do you have Christ? Are you trusting him? Are you finding cleansing, sanctification in Christ's name? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the gift of your Son. We're thankful for the gift of righteousness, something that's totally foreign to our personal experience, to our existence, but something that is a gift, righteousness, because of Christ, what he has done on our behalf. I pray that each soul here would be trusting in you, finding not a reason to boast in ourselves, our works, our heritage, what we have done or haven't done, but only what Christ has done. Please help us to live, as Isaiah said, Isaiah 66, verse 2, I think it is, that to this one I will look, says Yahweh, to him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Please help us to be those people. Please help us not to be callous, have hardened consciences, consciences that we would sin and just, you know, wipe our mouths and say, what? What's wrong with it? Please help us to be sensitive before you, even to realize our lips are defiled. And what we say comes from a defiled heart, but you give a new heart. You are the one who can cleanse and sanctify us. And even with Isaiah's case, use us for your redemptive purposes. 
in this age. Please help us to be faithful as you are faithful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.